Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Amory's written 29 books, hundreds of articles. Uh, he's been featured Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, uh, as uh, one of the world's most influential thinkers, Time Magazine, one of the 100 most influential people in the world, etc. Amory has been, uh, since I've known him, and that's pushing a, a few decades now, uh, constantly getting us to think differently, not just about energy issues, uh, for which he's most famous, but security, a durable peace, food issues, water issues, the connection of issues. Uh, and that is a contribution that people often don't recognize for decades uh, as, as he goes through this material, as you'll see today. Uh, you'll find probably 10 years from now, that's what he was talking about. I see those connections. He's forever been out ahead on that. So for that, we are immensely grateful. Please help me welcome Amory Lovins. Thank you, Bob. After that generous introduction, I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. Uh, but I'm particularly glad to have the chance today to help you imagine a world where business leaders and civil society have abandoned oil, coal, and nuclear energy in favor of alternatives that work better and cost less. Uh, efficient use and renewable energy. This, as we'll see, could solve many of the world's biggest problems without making new ones. And that world that I invite you to imagine this afternoon, <clears throat> and that my team will finish synthesizing and describing in detail over the next five or six quarters, is available, practical, and profitable now. At Rocky Mountain Institute, we know this because we're doing it. We do solutions, not problems. We do transformation, not incrementalism. And we are practitioners, not theorists. Now, politicians and the media, um, by the way, could we have the slides, please? We're still on the frozen frame. Is there a, there we go. Um, politicians and uh, the media often administer to us a stupid energy policy multiple choice test, which, if clearly stated, would ask us all, do you uh, prefer to die of climate change or oil wars or perhaps nuclear holocaust? Uh, of course, a better answer, which we are seldom offered, is none of the above. And that's what we get when we use energy in a way that saves money, because then climate change, oil dependence, and nuclear proliferation all go away, not at a cost, but at a profit, because saving fuel costs less than buying fuel. Most of the Copenhagen negotiators somehow forgot that energy is... Uh, or efficiency is, is cheaper than fuel. So what they should have been talking about is not cost, burden, and sacrifice, but rather profits, jobs, and competitive advantage that uh, sweetens the politics enough so that any remaining resistance to climate protection should melt faster than the glaciers. 
Uh, now, a year ago, McKinsey and Company showed how to cut the projected 2030 global emissions of greenhouse gases by 70% very cheaply. So this supply curve shows how much you save or pay to save various amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. And the costlier stuff on the right, um, on the supply side and carbon capture and storage, has only a slightly larger area under that curve than the profitable stuff on the left, which is basically energy efficiency. Uh, and uh, as we'll see later, if you use newer technologies and better ways of combining them through integrative design, you would have much bigger and cheaper, that is more profitable, savings on the left side, which would outweigh the right side. So instead of paying an average of four euros, about six bucks, to save a ton of CO2, you would have a strongly negative cost. So I'll come back to that. But do we have enough time? How fast must energy efficiency work? Well, if the energy we use to make a dollar of GDP kept drifting down by just 1% a year, then carbon emissions would triple by 2100, and then we're all toast. Of course, what we're trying to do is make toast, not be toast. So what would happen if we could cut energy intensity not 1% a year, but 2% a year? Well, that would be enough to stabilize emissions. And if we could do it 3 or 4% a year, then that would reduce the emissions enough to avoid triggering further climate chaos. But can we do that? Well, yes. Uh, the United States has routinely cut its energy intensity 2 to 4% a year for decades. And when we last paid attention, which ended in 85, we actually cut our oil intensity by more than 5% a year. China has cut its energy intensity over 5% a year for a quarter century through 2001. Last year, after a few years lapse, they regained that pace. Many big companies are making billions of dollars profit substituting efficiency for fuel and cutting their energy intensity by 6 to 16% a year. So why should 3 or 4% a year be so hard, especially since most of the growth is in places like China and India that are building their infrastructure from scratch, and it's a lot easier to build it right the first time than to fix it later. And since everybody who does energy efficiency makes money at it, why should this be costly? Well, I'd like to elaborate those themes in, in two stories for you here. Oil and electricity, which is mostly about coal, and oil and power plants each release a little over two-fifths of the uh, fossil carbon in this country. Now, let me start with the oil story. In 2004, my team published a detailed, transparent, Pentagon co-sponsored study called Winning the Oil Endgame, showing how to eliminate U.S. oil use by the 2040s, led by business for profit, facilitated by innovative public policy. It was written for business and military leaders, uh, and we built the study around competitive strategy business cases for cars, trucks, planes, military, and fuels. The transition could look like this, that the use of oil, the heavy red line, and the imports of oil, the dashed red line, rather than heading toward the northeast corner as officially forecast, could turn down along the green curves by redoubling the efficiency of using energy at an average cost of $12 per saved barrel. And then <clears throat> we could substitute advanced biofuels and save natural gas for the other half at an average cost of $18 a barrel, go down along the blue curves, 
So the average cost of getting off oil altogether is only about $15 a barrel. That's five times less than we're paying for the stuff now. Um, conservatively, assuming that its hidden costs are all worth zero. Um, by the way, our costliest barrel of savings or substitution would still be $26 oil. Obviously, the technical hub, nub of the problem is uh, in transportation, which uses about 70% of the oil. But we found there's a common recipe for tripling the efficiency of cars, trucks, and planes with better safety and no compromise by making them lighter weight, more slippery, and moving through the air or along the road and giving them advanced propulsion. Uh, this often improves performance, too. For example, this Opel diesel hybrid concept car gets 150 miles an hour and 94 miles a gallon, although not at the same instant. Uh, uh, triple efficiency cars, we found, can repay any extra cost in about a year. Triple efficiency trucks, uh, probably half a year. Triple efficiency planes, a few years. And triple efficiency is thus a very good deal. It's like buying uh, fuel for about 25 to 55 cents a gallon. Now, these kinds of breakthrough vehicles can serve all purposes and tastes. For example, 10 years ago, my team and a couple of European partners designed this uncompromised, safe, high-performance, halved-weight, midsize suburban assault vehicle. Uh, uses, uh, well, it gets about 67 miles a gallon on gasoline or 114 on hydrogen. Uh, and the, uh, the gasoline version would sell uh, for an extra $2,500 retail price. That's because it's a hybrid. But it wouldn't cost extra because it's ultralight. I'll explain why in a minute. Basically, the costlier carbon fiber it's made of is offset by simpler automaking and a smaller propulsion system. So more about that in a minute. Now, Toyota, a couple of years back, showed a carbon fiber concept car that has the same interior size as a Prius, but one-half the fuel use and one-third the weight. Uh, its tiny battery bank as a plug-in hybrid is recharged by a half-liter engine that you can see tucked under the rear seat. Um, Rocky Mountain Institute's fifth spinoff, Bright Automotive, is ready to mass-produce this aluminum van. It's about three to 12 times less fuel consumptive than the commercial vans you see now. And it's a plug-in hybrid, but unlike other plug-in hybrids, it does not need a subsidy to make a strong business case to the fleet buyer because its lightweight and low drag eliminate most of its costly batteries. The way to make batteries cheap is don't need many of them by doing first what we call platform fitness. Now, to understand how this works, let's think about where the fuel goes that uh, you feed into your car. You know, your car every day uses, on average, about 100 times its weight in ancient plants. Think of this great big steamy pile of old primeval swamp goo and dinosaur poop. That's what we run our civilization on. There must be some more modern way to do this. But what happens to that fuel energy once you put the gasoline in the tank? Well, seven-eighths of it never gets to the wheels. It's lost in the engine, idling, driveline, accessories. And of the 13% that actually moves the car, half of that is used to push the air aside or to heat the tires and road. 
So only the last 6% of your fuel energy actually accelerates the car and then heats the brakes when you stop. Oh, it gets worse. Only a 20th of the mass you're accelerating is you. A 1920th is the heavy steel car. Therefore, only a 20th of that 6%, or 0.3% of the fuel energy, actually moves the driver. This is what we're fighting over? Anyway, uh, this is not a very gratifying result after 120-something years of devoted engineering effort. However, there's good news. Um, Two-thirds of the energy needed to move the car is caused by its weight, and every unit of energy that we save at the wheel Save seven additional units, you don't need to waste getting it to the wheels. So it'll ultimately save a total of eight units at the tank. Whereas if you just improve the engine, which is what Detroit normally does, every unit you save in the engine saves one unit in the tank. There's no leverage. But here there's huge leverage, particularly in making the car radically lighter weight. So how did we make that SUV design? Well, there's only 14 parts in it, in the body each made with one low-pressure die set. That saves about 99% of the normal nearly billion-dollar tooling cost because an SUV made of steel normally has 10 or 20 times more parts than this, each with an average of four progressive high-pressure steel stamping die sets. That's a good start. Each of these parts <clears throat> can be lifted with one hand and no hoist. The big complicated part on the side I can briefly lift with one finger. Um, these parts then snap precisely together for bonding, and they align themselves exactly so that you don't need the jigs, robots, and welders of the body shop. And if you lay color in the mold, you don't need the paint shop either. So there go the two hardest and costliest parts of making the car. The capital intensity would be at least two-fifths less than for the leanest plant in the industry. Now, <clears throat> new technology developed by our fourth spinoff can make... Carbon caps, for example. Um, <clears throat> this is a test piece for some military helmets now shipping. And this is a two-thirds carbon fiber, one-third thermoplastic object. Which, as you can hear, has really good acoustics. Uh, <clears throat> and I guess we can pass it around as long as I'm really sure of getting it back afterwards. <clears throat> it's tougher than titanium. Tom Friedman has whacked it real hard with a sledgehammer without even scuffing it. Uh, and that was made in less than a minute. We're used to thinking of carbon fiber for, you know, boat masts and stuff like that, sporting goods, as, as being made by hand layup and autoclave. It's very slow and expensive. Well, this is a very different process. And think of that object as like finding a Saudi Arabia under Detroit because... That's how much oil our country would save uh, if we made all our cars and light trucks out of stuff like that because half the weight and half the fuel use go away. It gets safer because these materials can absorb 12 times the crash energy uh, per pound of steel, and the car costs the same to make. So I think drilling in the Detroit formation is a really prospective play. Well, at, <clears throat> at RMI, we accelerate these kinds of breakthrough oil savings by what we call institutional acupuncture. Uh, that is, we figure out where the business logic is congested and not flowing properly. We stick little needles in it to get it flowing. This is uh, very effective and as much fun as you can have with clothes on. 
our, our, our partners in doing this <clears throat> range from Ford to Walmart, from Boeing to the Pentagon. Uh, of course, to, to take the world beyond oil, we need to transform six sectors, cars, trucks, planes, fuels, military, and finance. <clears throat> um, but I'm pleased to report that at least three or four of those six are now at or past the tipping point where it gets easier, even though there's still a lot of hard work to do. And just last year, mainstream analysts began to see peak oil not in supply but in demand. In April 2009, the Wall Street Journal reported ExxonMobil agreed with uh, many government and private forecasters that U.S. gasoline use had already peaked in 2007 and would now head down indefinitely. September 2009, the top strategic consultancy to the oil industry said that the industrialized nation's total oil use had peaked in early 2005 and would never get that high again. And in October, a conservative analysis by Deutsche Bank based on electrification of new cars found that world oil use will peak around 2016 and then fall by 2030 to 8% below today's level or about 40% below the consensus forecast. In other words, oil is becoming uncompetitive even at low prices before it becomes unavailable even at high prices. That's good news. <clears throat> now, my second big story is about saving electricity and then making electricity differently. And uh, in round numbers, 70% of our electricity in this country is used in buildings and 30% in industry. Two decades ago, my team looked at 1,000 technologies for saving electricity, and we added up their measured cost and performance, we found that about three-quarters of all the electricity used in the U.S. is wasted. That is, <clears throat> that if you retrofitted the best technologies wherever they would fit and make sense and make money, altogether you'd save about three-quarters of the electricity then being used, and the average cost of doing so would be about one cent a kilowatt hour in today's dollars. That's cheaper than just running a coal or nuclear station, even if building that power plant and the grid were free. Uh, of course, since then, the efficiency techniques have improved faster than they've been applied. So the potential savings are now even bigger and cheaper. That is, the low-hanging fruit uh, has uh, dropped off the tree. It's mushing up around our ankles. It's spilling in over the tops of our waders, and the innovation tree keeps dumping more fruit on our heads. But there is an even more important innovation <clears throat> you might not have heard of. It's not in any official study yet. Uh, it's not in the latest academy study, not for lack of telling them. Um, but it's something we've developed at RMI called integrative design, which turns diminishing returns into expanding returns to investment in energy efficiency. That is, integrative design can make very large energy savings cost less than small or no savings. For example, let's just go visit my house. Um, <clears throat> Judy and I live in this structure at 7,100 feet up in the Colorado Rockies where temperatures have dropped as low as minus 47F. Midwinter cloud can last for 39 days. You can get frost any day of the year. But this is a fossil fuel-free house. It's a net energy exporter. It's 99% or so passive solar heated, and it has no conventional heating or cooling equipment. And then you come inside, 
um, and you're in this uh, emerging tropical jungle, now ripening the latest of our 32 banana crops. And in 1984, when we moved in, the house was saving about 99% of the space and water heating energy of a normal local house, 90% of the electricity, half the water, with a 10-month payback on the extra investment to achieve that efficiency. Today's technologies, which we've just retrofitted, are even better. I don't yet know how much better because we're still commissioning the software to measure it, but it does appear that the lights and appliances are using less electricity than the monitoring system. Uh, <coughs> the, uh, the key to all this is integrative design. So this white arch you can see in the upper left actually has 12 different functions, but only one cost. There's hardly any component in the building with fewer than three functions. Of course, it doesn't have to look like this to work like this. It can look like whatever you want. You could do the same in any climate. Uh, we've eliminated <coughs> air conditioning up to at least 115F with lower construction cost and better comfort. Or in steamy Bangkok, a friend of mine actually modeling his house on this one, which is in the opposite climate. His is hot and wet, mine is cold and dry. But he used the same integrative design approach to save 90% of the air conditioning energy with normal construction cost and better comfort. The same approach also works for big buildings, old and new. Here's one you might have heard of. Uh, <clears throat> we're, we're retrofitting the Empire State Building now um, to save 38% of the energy with a three-year payback thanks to integrative design. Remanufacturing the 6,500 windows on site in a temporary window factory set up on a vacant floor uh, turns them into super windows that are almost perfect in letting in light without heat. So with those saving, um, I believe it's uh, upwards of two-thirds of the winter heat loss and half the summer heat gain, plus better lights and office equipment and such, the peak cooling load goes down by a third. And that lets us uh, <clears throat> save a lot of money because now we don't need to close and tear up Fifth Avenue to dig out the old chillers and replace and expand them. Instead, we can renovate them in place and reduce them. That saves 17-odd million dollars in capital cost. It helps pay for the other improvements and cuts the payback to three years. That is, instead of paying about $30 million for the whole thing, we only pay 13 net. Uh, if you do the same trick retrofitting a 20-year-old curtain wall office tower, one of these all glass and no windows buildings near Chicago, we found you could save three-quarters of the energy with a payback of minus five months. In other words, it's slightly cheaper than the routine 20-year renovation that saves nothing because you piggyback on the routine reglazing you need to do anyway. Now, why don't you hear more about this approach? Why isn't it all over the place? Well, because in conventional practice, the more you save, the more it costs you. Uh, and therefore, the way most people think about it, let's say if you're insulating a house, is you only keep adding the insulation until the uh, extra cost of adding more is no longer paid for by the present valued energy savings. That's the cost-effectiveness limit where most people stop. However, if you keep investing beyond that limit, say if you put twice as much insulation in my house as is normally considered cost-effective, then a funny thing happens. Your marginal cost suddenly goes down again because you no longer need the furnace, ducts, fans, pipes, pumps, wires, controls, fuel supply arrangements. So it actually saved me 1100 bucks up front not to put in a heating system, but to buy super insulation and super windows and such instead. Uh, and that's, you see, how you get expanding returns. 
the more you save, the cheaper it gets. And of course, your lowest risk investment is the one you didn't need to make. This is not a very popular idea with many economists of the sort who probably lie awake nights worrying about whether what works in practice can possibly work in theory. Um, I, 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 I guess because uh, expanding returns make their models blow up, and that's inconvenient. But it does work if you're an engineer. Now, the same approach also works great in industry. For example, uh, three-fifths of the electricity runs motors, even a higher fraction in industry. And half of that electricity running motors is running pumps and fans on the other end of the motor. Well, there's about 35 things you can do to retrofit a motor system with a one-year payback uh, to save about half the energy. Uh, and the reason it's so cheap is of those 35 actions, 28 are free byproducts of the first seven. But first, we should stop wasting most of the energy used by the pumps, fans, and other motor-driven equipment. For example, pumps, the biggest use of motors, use liquid, move liquid through pipes. Well, a Dutch engineer we were working with redesigned a typical industrial pumping loop to use an order of magnitude less energy and cost less to build. I think he had at least an 86% saving, maybe 92, just by using fat, short, straight pipes instead of skinny, long, crooked pipes. <clears throat> And we all learned this stuff from a uh, master engineer in Singapore, Lee Englock. And uh, this is one of his latest installations, which saves 69% of the usual pumping energy at reduced construction costs, partly because the pumps and motors and electricals are all much smaller. So <clears throat> how does this work out with the electricity that's 60% used in motors? Well, from the coal burned in the power plant to the end use, there are so many compounding losses in succession that only a tenth of the fuel energy actually comes out the pipe as flow. But now turn that around backwards. So instead of compounding losses from left to right, you have compounding savings from right to left. And you find every unit of flow or friction you save in the pipe saves 10 units of coal and cost and pollution and global weirding back at the power plant. Also, as you go back upstream, each component gets progressively smaller, simpler, and cheaper. Uh, so you end up saving the most energy and the most capital cost. And my team has found such snowballing energy and capital savings in more than $30 billion worth of industrial redesign so far in 29 sectors. Uh, lots of interesting examples. Uh, for example, our, our latest chip fab design is expected to use uh, a third the normal amount of energy and half the normal capital to build it, get rid of all 22,000 tons of chillers. Our latest data center design just went into service. It's uh, using a quarter of the previous amount of electricity, costs less to build, but has four times the computing capability. Um, and had they felt able to uh, follow all of our recommendations, they would have expected to cut the energy intensity uh, by uh, something like 95% uh, and save half the capital cost. Our latest mine design uses no fossil fuels, no grid electricity. It runs on gravity. Of course, none of this stuff would be possible if the original designs had been done optimally in the first place. Part of the reason they're not is that the engineering wasn't taught properly. Uh, we've checked all the English language general and mechanical engineering texts that we could find a few years ago. And they all said, for example, that you should optimize the thickness of insulation in your house 
according to how much energy it'll save, but without counting the avoidable capital cost of the heating equipment. And that you should optimize the diameter of a pipe to get the right amount of friction only by comparing the cost of a fatter pipe uh, with the uh, avoidable pumping energy, but without counting the avoidable capital cost of smaller pumping equipment. These are basic methodological errors. Uh, and uh, we therefore are uh, hatching a plot uh, for the nonviolent overthrow of bad engineering, uh, which we call 10XE Factor 10 Engineering. There are a lot of wonderful engineers out there whose, whose work needs to be better known. And we're pulling together a couple of dozen very vivid high-brain Velcro uh, case studies spanning the range of engineering disciplines and applications to present alongside the conventional disintegrated design. So when you read down the two chains of design logic with all the calcs and drawings, you'll understand when you get to the end how asking different questions got you a very different answer that was about 10 times more efficient but cost less to build. And from using these cases in our engagements with uh, clients, we believe that they do irreversibly rearrange the designer's metal furniture. Uh, so go to 10xe.org, uh, and if you have great cases or practitioners we should know about, we would love to hear from you. Uh, just to give one example of how this thinking works, uh, I may have surprised you with the data center numbers, so <clears throat> let me show you how it works. Um, it's a little like what we showed earlier about pumping, or the notion of helping pay for the light weighting of a car by making the engine smaller to get the same acceleration, or helping to pay for the retrofit of the Empire State Building by making the chillers smaller. So uh, you have, again, a chain of conversion losses. You start with, say, 100 watts of fuel fed into the power plant, half of that's coal, and maybe 30 watts of that actually ends up as electricity coming into the meter. But then half of that electricity is lost before it gets to the servers. It goes to mainly cooling and uninterruptible power supplies, which account for half of the facility's capital cost. Then of the electricity that gets to the server, only about half gets into the chips. The other half is lost in dreadfully inefficient power supplies and a whole bunch of fans to take heat that shouldn't be there off the motherboard into the room where we can do dumb things with it. Uh, then how about the chips? Well, they're humming away all the time, but actually many of them aren't doing much or anything useful. Uh, partly because of bloatware, partly because the, there's such a, a huge underutilization of the computing resources. They're not properly consolidated. You see there's very little left? Let me magnify this little stalk coming out the lower right, because otherwise it'll get too small to see. Okay, the next problem <coughs> is, is the uh, valueless and inefficient applications, the software problem. And even after that, you may have inefficient business processes. So very little business value, customer value, actually comes out the other end. But let's turn this around, go from right to left, and get some compounding savings. First of all, let's write really terse code, elegantly compiled, so that every compute cycle is a needed and wanted one. And then let's get servers four times more efficient. It turns out when you shop for them, they are out there, and they cost the same. But then you don't need most of the cooling and most of the power supply. And there are much smarter ways to do those as well. And you can even do uh, fuel cell co or trigeneration and get rid of half the utility loss. You get the idea. When you multiply all this together, there's two orders of magnitude leverage to make the data center more efficient. And it's going to cost a lot less to build. 
And I promised also to tell you a little bit about uh, the revolution in electricity supply. And that's well along. It's transforming how the world produces electricity. And this graph shows how much electricity is being made worldwide or is expected to be made in the future according to industry projections by what The Economist magazine calls micropower. And there are two kinds of micropower. The big red wedge at the top is co-generating electricity in factories or buildings along with useful heat. And that combination, rather than making the heat in a boiler and the electricity in a power plant where heat's thrown away, uh, typically saves you at least half of the fuel, energy, and capital cost. Um, so the other wedges, the colored ones at the bottom, are all of the renewable sources other than big hydropower. What does this add up to? Well, uh, micropower is making a sixth of the world's electricity, about 16% versus 12 or 13 for nuclear. It's making around two-thirds of all new electricity. So the big thermal power plants, whether they're coal, gas, or nuclear, that we are told are indispensable, are only one-third of the new supply capacity being added. And they've been forced into that minority market share and shrinking simply because they have too high cost and too high financial risk to attract investors. Now, a few numbers to illustrate this. In 2007, the U.S. or China or Spain each added more wind capacity than the world added nuclear capacity. And in that year, the U.S. added more wind capacity than we'd added coal capacity in the previous five years put together. Again, it's not just a nuclear phenomenon. It's that the central plants generally are unattractive as a business case. In 2008, for the first time in maybe a century, the world invested more in renewable than in fossil-fueled electric generators. Wow. In 2009, China doubled its wind power for the fifth year running. 61% uh, of the new capacity installed in Europe was renewable. Within the next few months, China's going to pass its 2020 wind power target. And around the end of this year, the global capacity, not output, but capacity of renewables, excluding big hydro, is expected to surpass that of nuclear power. And it'll surpass it in output about four or five years later. Here's another snapshot of what's going on. This shows the amount of generating capacity added worldwide in each year for each of three technologies. Wind in blue, photovoltaics in green, um, the, the little branch at the end is we don't quite have the 2009 data yet. And red is nuclear, which actually lost capacity each of the two, last two years. So in 2008, the renewables other than big hydro, so it's mainly wind, various kinds of solar, small hydro, uh, waste and biomass, combustion, and so on. They got $100 billion of private capital, and they added 40 billion watts of supply. Nuclear got an added zero. In fact, the output growth from nuclear power may never catch up with the output growth from the photovoltaics because they're already bigger and growing enormously faster. This micropower revolution is led by China, they are the world leader now in making equipment for photovoltaics, wind, 
small hydro, biomass, and solar water heating. They intend to be the leader in all the renewables and will be in a few years. Uh, so, so, you know, the revolution happened. Sorry if you missed it. But you, some of you can still get in on it. Um, and some of you have been leading it. Now, given all this, why is it that we still hear talk about a nuclear renaissance? Well, I've been out looking for it. I think I found it. Uh, if you look very carefully <clears throat> at the International Atomic Energy Agency's data showing how much nuclear power is under construction in each year starting 1950, the blue is the uh, number of reactors and the red is their capacity. The nuclear renaissance is this little uptick at the far right end. And what it amounts to is that there are 56, as of a few weeks ago, nuclear plants under construction worldwide. That's about a quarter as many as were under construction at the peak in 1979. And they have a market share of about four or four and a half percent of the capacity being built. Um, except that when you look a little closer at those 56 plants, a curious pattern emerges. 13 of them have been listed under construction for over 20 years. 24 of them have no official start date. At least half of them are late. Uh, 41 of them are in four centrally planned and untransparent power systems. Uh, most of the new starts, in fact about three quarters now, are in China. All 56 are centrally planned, usually by state enterprises or drawing on the public purse and none are free market uh, transactions that really compete with alternatives as we would expect in a market economy. Um, and actually, that burst of construction in the 70s and 80s means there's a corresponding echo of retirements some decades later. You could, of course, shift those retirements somewhat to the right by further life extensions if justified by safety and economics, but clearly construction will be very hard pressed just to make up for the retirement of the whole existing fleet. The average plant is about 25 years old and was designed for maybe 40. Um, <clears throat> I'll add one more economic comment also. Um, starting in August 2005, um, New nuclear plants in this country, or at least the first half dozen of them, were offered new subsidies on top of the old ones that approximate or exceed their total construction cost. And for the following three years, we had the most robust nuclear politics and the strongest capital markets in history, and yet the 33 projects proposed were able to raise not a penny of capital from the private capital market in, as, as, uh, as equity and they were offered debt capital only if we taxpayers would guarantee 100% of it. So that, if you saw a headline last week about U.S. reviving nuclear power, what that was about was the president turned into a political occasion in the hope of buying some climate votes in the Senate, um, a, an announcement that the first of the loan guarantees that President Bush signed into law for nuclear plants in 2005 had just been provisionally offered. What does provisionally mean? Well, it means that if the Nuclear Regulatory Commission licenses the unlicensed design, which they figure will take at least three or four years, and 
if somebody comes up with 20% equity to put into the project when they haven't been able to raise any under much stronger market conditions than now, uh, <clears throat> and if the utility still wants to proceed under the conditions that then exist, and if the Department of Energy and the Office of Management and Budget can enter, end their year-long dispute about how much the utility should pay for the default risk on the loan guarantee, because they're, I think, at least an order of magnitude apart on that, um, <clears throat> then we would all uh, issue the loan guarantee. Uh, I think that's a lot of ifs. And why are we doing this? Well, supposedly because nuclear will help protect the climate by displacing coal. Well, if you look at the observed cost in the market of producing new electricity or saving it by various means, um, and this is, by the way, delivered to the customer, so central plants have this red bar, I've assumed conservatively, three cents a kilowatt hour to deliver the power to your meter whereas the stuff that's already on site is already delivered, so you don't need to pay for that. This, you see there's a, a fairly worrisome cost comparison because at the uh, cost estimates that both utilities and Wall Street are finding for new nuclear plants, um, the cost of new delivered nuclear electricity is somewhere off the top of the chart in the upper left here, uh, a lot more than new coal, new combined cycle gas with expensive gas, about two closer to three times as much as new firmed wind power, meaning you can have it any time whether the wind's blowing or not, uh, several times the cost of new cogeneration by various means, many times the cost of efficiency. And, you know, arithmetic is not an opinion. I'm just reporting the prices we see in the market. Now, if you then... Um, convert these costs to how much carbon you can displace per dollar spent on these various methods, adjusting for the carbon released by the cogeneration and the combined cycle gas, then you find that at current price estimates, actually a year and a half old by now, probably worse now, you could save about five kilos of carbon per dollar if you bought a nuclear plant, that's about the same that you would get by buying a combined cycle gas plant, but it's only half what you would save by buying a wind plant or cogen. Actually, cogen using waste heat we're paying to throw away is an even better deal. And the average cost of efficiency programs is around two cents a kilowatt hour. So that means instead of five, you'd be saving about 47 kilos of CO2 per dollar. The better programs are about half that cost, so they're way up in the ceiling somewhere on this chart. So, yeah, carbon displaces CO2. Trouble is, uh, excuse me, uh, nuclear displaces CO2. Nuclear, however, is so expensive that it will save you about two to 20 times less carbon per dollar and about 20 to 40 times less carbon per year than if you bought efficiency and micropower instead, which is exactly what the market does when you let it. By the way, this opportunity cost of not choosing the best buys first is, is, is so severe that if you bought a new nuclear plant instead of efficiency, the result would be to release more extra carbon than if you'd spent the same money buying a coal plant. So if climate's a problem, we need the most solution per dollar and per year, and we need to invest judiciously, not indiscriminately. 
to achieve that result. I'm often asked, though, so without nuclear, how do you displace the coal-fired electricity? So the other day I added it up. And let's say that one unit on this chart going towards the right represents the amount of coal-fired electricity we used last year, which is about half our total electricity. Well, if all the states were only as productive in using electricity as the top 10 states on average were five years ago, that would save uh, over half, closer to two-thirds of our coal-fired electricity um, at a big profit. If you bought all the efficiency that was worthwhile many years ago, and now it's even bigger than that, but we don't know how much bigger, that is cheaper than just the coal going into an existing coal-fired power plant, then you would save all the coal-fired electricity or maybe half again as much as that. Then there are some options that cost more than operating a power plant, but a lot less than building one. For example, the wind power stuck in the queue waiting to be hooked up to a power line would save about half the coal-fired electricity. Uh, on 4 February 2010, the National Renewable Energy Lab issued a reassessment of U.S. wind energy potential, and it's over three times their previous assessment because they look closer and use more modern turbines, which are higher up where the wind is stronger. And they found that the cost-effective, that is very profitable, wind power potential on available land after you exclude all the places where you shouldn't build one is 19 times our coal-fired electricity. Do you think you could cite one-nineteenth of the profitable potential? I think you could probably find places willing to do that. Um, and by the way, wind costs about half as much as new coal power, a third as much as new nuclear power. Um, industrial cogeneration would displace about two-fifths of the coal-fired electricity. Cogen in buildings would displace some more. We don't yet know how much. We haven't yet assessed a lot of other renewables like small hydro and geothermal and so on. Um, uh, something we could do tomorrow morning is to run our coal plants less and our largely idle but already built combined cycle gas plants more, and this would displace more than a third of the coal-fired electricity at an extra cost of two-odd cents a kilowatt hour. There's a third category, which is things that would cost more than buying a new coal-fired power plant today but less by the time you could build the coal-fired power plant. And solar power is in that category. Uh, and if you put it on 3% of the structures in the country, that would displace all the coal-fired electricity, again, on an annual basis. So when you add all this up, let's see, where does that get us to? Over 22 times the uh, coal-fired electricity this doesn't sound like a very strong case that nuclear power is the only way to do it, which is what we are often told. Of course, to achieve this potential, <clears throat> let me put it in context, we're talking about combining efficient use and diverse dispersed renewable supply uh, to turn the whole electricity sector on its head. Because right now, we have a lot of big coal and nuclear plants supplemented part-time because these are costlier to run by mainly gas-fired plants, tiny bit of oil, less than 2%, and then a little renewables on top, a little bit of efficiency. So <clears throat> what we're mostly relying on spreads either climate chaos or nuclear bombs. Um, doesn't sound like a, a very good deal. And we reward our utilities, not in this state, but in, I think, 42 states, 
for selling more electricity, and we penalize them for cutting your bill. This is just as dumb as it sounds. But now, especially where regulators are starting to follow California's lead and reward cutting your bill, not selling you more electricity, the market is shifting massively towards efficiency, renewables, cogeneration, and other new ways to blend them all together reliably. And these best buys are very much more effective, both per dollar and per year, in saving carbon. So the verdict of the marketplace is also the most effective climate solution, and it can also make our electricity system so resilient that major failures that are now inevitable by design become impossible by design. Now, acknowledging nuclear's market collapse and helping developing countries harness more modern options for getting reliable and affordable energy for their development can also smoke out the nuclear weapons proliferators and help to end energy poverty. So it, it would make the world richer, fairer, cooler, and safer. Now, combine the electricity and oil revolutions and similar opportunities with natural gas and directly used coal, and you have the really big story I'll leave you with, reinventing fire. Rocky Mountain Institute is focused on driving this business-led transition from oil and coal to efficiency and renewables. Uh, I suppose you could call it defossilizing fuel. Uh, of course, not all the fossils are in the fuel. Uh, but probably the shortest path is just to let all ways to save or produce energy compete fairly at honest prices, regardless of their type, size, technology, location, or ownership. Gee, I wonder who wouldn't be in favor of that. Wouldn't it be interesting to find out just by taking economics seriously? We will be doing a kind of grand synthesis of reinventing fire. Uh, look for it in five or six quarters. Um, and what I've just summarized here rests on very detailed practical experience and empirical evidence. I think it reflects where the smarter energy companies are headed in their co-evolution with what you and civil society demand of them. A few governments are helping. Most are struggling to catch up. Some are standing in the way. There's still a lot of old thinking around, but this is already happening because the economics are so uh, compelling. And if you think that anything I've said here today sounds too good to be true, I would just ask you to remember Marshall McLuhan's remark. He said, only puny secrets need protection. Big discoveries are protected by public incredulity. Thank you. You've been talking a lot about the economics of energy and these savings, um, and at least in my view, and I think in a lot of other people's, uh, the situation that we're in is the result of uh, market capitalism and the economic system we have. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about uh, maybe any changes you might recommend in the, in the economic system that would help to foster uh, the type of things you're talking about. I think I heard most of that. The acoustics are a little difficult when you're standing up here. Um, 
We wrote a book with Paul Hawkins 11 years ago called Natural Capitalism, which I think you might like. You can get it free at natcap.org, and there's also a Harvard Business Review summary of it there. Um, and it describes a way of doing business as if nature and people were properly valued, but without needing to know or signal that value. As the Industrial Revolution uh, made people about 100 times more productive because at that time the relative scarcity of people was limiting progress in exploiting seemingly boundless nature. You know, there weren't enough weather, weavers to make enough cloth for most people to afford. Uh, well, we did that, but now we have the opposite pattern of scarcity. The logic of economizing on your scarcest resource remains valid, but now we have abundant people and scarce nature, not the reverse. So now we need to use nature, not people, far more productively. Therefore, the keystone principle is, is radical resource productivity. And I described some ways to do that, but it, it applies not just to energy, but to water and materials and topsoil and everything else we borrow from the planet. And then the other principles of natural capitalism uh, are to produce things the way nature does, with closed loops, no waste, and no toxicity, to align producer and customer incentives by uh, what we call a solutions economy business model, uh, where both parties get rewarded for doing more and better with less for longer. And then finally, you take some of the profits resulting from eliminating waste and reinvest them back into the kinds of capital you're shortest of, like nature, because, of course, capitalism is the productive use of and reinvestment in capital. Trouble is, we only counted two kinds of capital, money and goods. We left out the two more important kinds, people and nature. But if you play with a full deck, productively using and reinvesting in all kinds of capital, then you make more money, gain stunning competitive advantage, do more good and have more fun. And you, you end up, like our mentor Ray Anderson, um, with a, a business that uh, takes nothing, wastes nothing, does no harm. And you do very well by doing good at the expense, not of the planet, but of your less alert competitors. And we'd like to see a lot more of that kind of competition. Okay. Thank you for your very inspiring talk. And it was really great to see um, some of the case studies, especially from the building sector. But my question is for the transportation sector. Um, I was wondering, you know, w um, where are we going to see those case studies in the transportation sector? I, I uh, had a senior environmental manager at Honda tell me, you know, RMI has really great theories and they have, you know, great uh, graphics and everything, but we haven't really seen um, many of those things they're talking about get to the marketplace. So I was wondering what the largest barriers are. We are hearing about the hypercar. Oh, it sounds like you have one ago, already. But, you know, we can't buy one now, right? Well, Honda's a great company. I actually drive a Honda Inside, which does about 64 miles a gallon. It's from nine years ago. Um, and the guy who designed it has driven my Honda. We've had some good conversations about it. I think uh, the car industry, is that mainly what you're asking about, is the most unusual of the 30 sectors I work in. Um, I've been a cultural repairman in Detroit, for example, now for 19 years. And it, this, this business has some really unusual behaviors. For example, they count sunk costs as unamortized assets, that is, they base strategic decisions on accounting, not economics, as if it were better to write off obsolete stuff later when you don't have a company instead of now when you do. So 
two of them in this country just had to do that on a massive scale. Uh, they count cost by the part or by the pound. Does anyone here buy cars by the part or by the pound? No, you buy it by the car. So this made it difficult for them to see that it's okay to pay more for, say, a carbon fiber body, less for the assembly, less for the powertrain, and the whole car ends up costing the same. The first time an automaker did a serious study of how much light weighting can you pay for by making the propulsion system smaller to get the same acceleration was about three years ago. We did it with them. It was, you know, this is not a very advanced level of design integration, but they just don't do design integration in the way that we're used to, say, in aerospace or in IT. So there's a lot of work to do, but the obstacles are cultural rather than technical or economic. And if you uh, think back to that um, Toyota car in the upper right, for example. Uh, that's not theoretical. Now, of course, you might say concept cars are usually just a brag. They don't get to market. Except there was an odd thing about this one. The day before Toyota showed it, the world's biggest maker of carbon fiber, Torre, announced a big factory to make, car to mass produce, they said, carbon fiber car parts for Toyota. Not a phrase previously heard in this business. And when I saw the juxtaposition, I said, gee, that sounds like a statement of strategic intent. Um, and after a while, Toyota called me up and said, you know, that's what we meant it to be, but Detroit doesn't seem to have noticed. Could you try to figure out what happened? So I went and made some inquiries and called back and said, yeah, um, they didn't notice. They had an utter failure of intelligence. One thing was at the Tokyo Motor Show, the other was in the Nikkei, and they didn't connect the dots, but they have now. Thank you. <laughs> and then Honda and Nissan entered similar deals with Torre. So that leapfrog is off and running. And uh, I can't tell you exactly who the customers are of, of FiberForge, which has that technology and the thing I passed around, but uh, I can tell you it's a who's who list, including some very interesting automakers. So uh, anybody that thinks this isn't happening is not paying attention, and they will be surprised in the market. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.